Question. As a Queen's death and all the events of the last ten days caused you to stop and reflect on the reality of death. Not just death in general. Has it caused you to stop and reflect on your own impending death? I'm not starting my sermon like this with a question to be morbid or anything like that. I'm starting the sermon with this question because in the passage before us, one of the wisest men to ever walk on this earth commends to us as God's people the spiritual discipline of dwelling in the house of mourning that we might dwell on the topic and the reality of death. In the house of mourning, as we think about death, God in his wisdom uses death to help us live and to prepare to die. In fact, if I could sum up this sermon in a single sentence, it would be this. In the house of mourning, we learn to live by facing up to our approaching death. The reason for this sermon is because the occasion of the queen's death in God's all-wise providence gives us as a nation an opportunity to stare our own death in the face. Just uh, incidentally, yesterday I was reading an article. You may have read it. It's written by someone who's no stranger to any of us. Uh, Times radio reporter, Cal McDonald. And if you've not read his article, go on the Times online and, and read it. He wrote this. Too often... We try to feed our insatiable desire for life to be made up of moments, quick and fleeting, fueled by addictive devices and apps and a news cycle that just doesn't quit. But pause. Because in life, there is a seriousness associated with the traditions and ceremonies that we are witnessing this week. There are some things in life that deserve tradition and ceremony and time and deep and heartfelt consideration. And one of those things is death. Callum, in many ways, captures what Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verses 1 to 4 capture. Death deserves time deep heartfelt consideration. So my plan for us this morning is very simple and straightforward. We're going to walk through the opening four verses of Ecclesiastes chapter 7. And as we do so, we're going to learn how to live as we prepare for our day. Solomon's first point is this. Character is better than cologne. 
A good name is better than precious ointment or fine perfume. Let me explain. In the ancient Near East, if you were a person who was had the means, you could have fine perfume, precious ointment. And if at any point you, you put it on yourself, you would give other people the impression that you had it all. You see, the thing about precious ointment and, and, and fine perfume was it was an expensive luxury item. So if we were thinking of the 21st century equivalent, you know how the rich and the famous, the celebrities, they, they, they often wear designer clothes, not just clothes that we know the brands of, but the, the really high end that we could never afford. They, they own the, the handbags, the high heels, the extremely expensive watches, the fast and the fancy cars. Whereas back in Solomon's day, if you wanted to make that same impression, all you would do is smother yourself in fine perfume. Now let me read the verse again. A good name is better than precious ointment. Solomon is saying here, it's one thing to be a pet person who's in possession of a great deal of wealth. Indeed, it's one thing to give the impression that you are living the good life. But it's quite another thing. Indeed, it is a far better thing for you to possess a good name, a good character. Well, fine perfume may tell everyone you're wealthy. Nothing is more invaluable. Nothing is more precious than the character behind your name. What we are on the inside, as we know from Scripture, is more important than what we are on the outside. Fine perfume, nice aftershave can make a person smell nice. Designer clothes, expensive watches can make a person look good, leave a good impression. But we all know that these things cannot cover up the odor or the ugliness of a bad reputation. The thing about a a good name is this. A good name will live beyond the grave. But the scent of perfume, fleeting. Now, all of us should want to have a good name, a good character. But not just because we want other people to know that. Because, but because before God, we know that he wants that. D.L. Moody said this, Character is what you are in the dark when no one sees you but God. You know, it's interesting in light of the Queen's death, all the tributes and the obituaries that have been written are revealing to us much about her character. Um, she was an incredible woman. But by all the things that have been written about her, her sense of duty, her servant-heartedness, her humility, her love, her care, her commitment. And as we sit in the house of mourning this morning, we may ask ourselves, what was it that lay underneath? What was it that inspired? What was it that motivated the queen? And again, it's the tributes and the obituaries that are reminding us she was a woman of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's, it's, not, it's not incidental there that someone who loves the Lord Jesus Christ is indwelt by his Holy Spirit 
has good character. Because that's what the Spirit does in us. It changes us from within. As we sit in the house of mourning, I suppose the question we need to ask is, what will be said of us when we die? What will be written in our obituaries? What will people say inspired us and motivated us in life? I'm reminded of a very poignant story I once heard. I'm sure you all know the name Alfred Nobel. Alfred, on one occasion, learnt the sad news that his brother had died. The next morning, he opened the newspaper to see what was said of his brother in the obituary section. To his horror, he saw not his brother's name, but his own. You can imagine the state of shock he was in. Alfred Nobel. It was a terrible mix-up. But as he stared at his own obituary in the paper, he was curious to find out what people thought about him. And this is what he discovered. The headline read, The merchant of death is dead. And then as he continued to read on, he read the most scathing obituary you could possibly imagine. Let me explain. It helps us to know that Alfred Nobel was one of Europe's most preeminent scientists and entrepreneurs in the late 19th century. He made his fortune by inventing and refining explosives. His most famous invention was dynamite. Even though his intentions were that these explosives were to be used for constructive purposes, like building roads and laying the foundations for buildings, all that the author of this obituary wanted to highlight was how dynamite's value was as a weapon of warfare. He highlighted how Alfred had grown rich by developing new ways to mutilate and kill. And in that moment, Alfred realized he did not want to be remembered in this manner. Now, the error of the newspaper was later corrected, but the incident left Alfred with a crisis of conscience. According to one of his biographers, Alfred became so obsessed with his posthumous reputation that he rewrote his last will, bequeathing most of his fortune to a cause upon which no future obituary writer would be able to cast aspersions. You know what he did? He gave all of his wealth all of his fortune to establish a series of international awards to be given each year to scientists, thinkers, and leaders who made remarkable contributions to the betterment of humankind. That's why I say you know him. Alfred Nobel. The most famous of the awards, he said, was to be given to the person or the persons who would do most or the best work for the promotion of peace. We call it the Nobel Peace Prize. It's one of the highest honors bestowed that can be bestowed on any human being. Just before his death, he confided in a friend, I want to be remembered for peace, not destruction. It's a powerful and it's a poignant story, but it begs the question, what will be written in your obituary? How will you be remembered? The Queen's going to be remembered as a woman of faith. It's nearly in every obituary, it's nearly going to, it's been preached 
today, it will be mentioned tomorrow in pulpits across the land. As far as I'm aware, she never received the Nobel Peace Prize, but as someone who had faith, she's now receiving the crown of righteousness that is laid up in heaven for her. Well, Solomon begins with this obvious truth. A good name is better than perfume. Character is better than cologne. But he couples that notice with a startling statement. The day of death is better than the day of birth. Your death day is better than your birthday. Paul's not the, uh, Solomon's not the only one to say this. Paul, the apostle, wrote this in his letter to the church at Philippi. Remember he had that, that agonizing moment where he says, I'm hard pressed to know what to do, to go on living so that the gospel might progress. Or he realized that to be with Christ was far better And so he wrote that famous verse, verse, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. That is why the day of a believer's death is the best day of all. Death in Christ is gain. Thomas Boston, a godly Scottish minister of a bygone age, wrote these words. In the day of our birth, we are born to die. In the day of our death, we die to live. Boston further described how for the believer, our dying day is the day we enter a better world. With higher perfection, greater purity, deeper rest, better company, better employment than the world we entered on the day we were born. Death is our entrance to glory. Charles Spurgeon. Death is the end of dying. On the day of the believer's death, dying is forever done. The saints who are with God shall never die anymore. Here's another way to think about that that, that proverb that uh, that Solomon says. The day of our death is better than the day of our birth. Think of Jesus' life. Think of Christmas. Think of the day he was born. That day was a, a glorious day, a blessed day. The angels in the sky sang glory to God in the highest. Peace on earth to all men. But even as blessed as that day was, it's not the best day. God becoming man, taking upon himself flesh. Credible day. Listen to these words of a famous theologian called Arsene Wenger, that's the man, the former manager of Arsenal, if you don't know. Christmas is important, but it is Easter that is decisive. You see, we have to go from Christmas to Easter because Easter is the decisive day. We have to go from the wooden crib to the rugged cross. Because it was on the day of Christ's death. It was there that he shed his blood to save us, to atone for our sin. We call it Good Friday. It is the day death was defeated. 
It was the day that he took in his body the punishment and penalty for our sin. You know, as we sit in the house of mourning this morning, and as we pause and reflect on death, not death in general, the most important death we can reflect on is the death of Jesus. You know, as, as, as we just think about death and as we think about the Queen's death, we've got to ask the question, why do people die? Bible's answer, the wages of sin is death. Why did Jesus die? There's multiple answers to that. The gift of God is eternal life. So to bring about the gift of God, God who so loved the world sent his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. What did he come to do? He came to die the death that you and I ought to have died. He died to pay the debt that we owe. He died to make atonement. He died to satisfy the divine justice of God. He died to defeat death so that we might live forevermore. You know, I said that the most glorious day is Easter. Yeah, Good Friday, but we can never forget the third day, the first day. The Lord's Day. Resurrection Day. The most glorious day in history when he conquered death. And he walked out of the tomb. So as we find ourselves in the house of mourning, as we think about death, we think about his death. Because it's in his death that our death can be transformed. So we've seen how a character is better than Cologne. We've seen how our death day is better than our birthday. Let's continue and let's see what lessons we can learn It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. For by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth, the house of laughing. Now Solomon says, going to a funeral is better than going to a festival. Going to a funeral is better than going to a feast. Going to a funeral is better than going to a party. Why? Strange statement. Because a funeral affords us the living to see where we are going. For this is the end of all mankind. Death. Death gives us the opportunity to see our end. Now, this isn't pessimism. This is realism. Now, we live in a culture that is so averse to death. We don't want to talk about it. We'll avoid it at any cost in conversation. And if we do talk about it, we'll avoid saying it's wor- We've seen the word death. We'll speak about someone's parting. We live in a death-avoidant culture. We want to hide from it. If that first question that I asked this morning, have you thought about the reality of death, your own death, and your answer was no, it's because we live in a culture that encourages that. We want to numb ourselves, busy ourselves with entertainment. We want to find happiness. We want fun. We want laughter. 
We don't want to think about death. But Solomon, in a wisdom, is telling us we need to engage with the sobering reality of death. Now, now just so you don't misunderstand me or mishear me, Solomon loved life. He loved feasts. He loved having a good time. He, he, he wrote about enjoying life to the glory of God, appreciating goodness, beauty of the world. Parties have their place. Think of Jesus. Read through the Gospels. Where do you find them? Time and time again. Feasting. Jesus loved being in the company of people. Think of him at the wedding of Cana, turning the water into wine. But Solomon says, listen, we need to go to funerals. They're better than parties and feasts. Because you've never been to a party and walked out and learned deep lessons about life. But you can go to a funeral and learn deep lessons about life and death. Your life. Your death. You know, when Solomon speaks here of the house of mourning, all he's referring to is visiting someone in the home where they have died. You see, in in ancient culture, if you died, you died in your home, and people would come and pay their respects. Then your body would be laid in a tomb or in a grave. We, We were thinking about that last week with John 11 and Jesus visiting Mary and Martha. Callum in his article speaks about in the highlands of Scotland, in the islands, there's a tradition of the vigil, the wake. So when someone dies in the highlands, it is typical of Scotland, it's typical that the, the coffin's taken into the home, and for three nights, there'll be a time of worship, and the family will invite friends to gather, and they'll sit. And it, in, in Gaelic, the word is they'll, they'll keep watch. In fact, we've been watching that all week, haven't we? As the queen lies in state. We sit. People come file past. They pay their final respects. And I want to argue that this tradition is good. It is good to stare death in the face. Isn't it what Callum says in his article? Our encounters with the death of the people we love are surely most stark when we encounter their coffin. Why? The evocative shape. The coldness. The perception of finality in its stillness. Coffins preach the best sermons. The Queen's coffin, my prayer is that it would preach the best sermon to the millions, if not billions of people who will tune in to watch it tomorrow. My prayer is it will be a megaphone to rouse a distracted, death-avoidant world to the God in whom she trusted and to the Saviour who died and was raised. Psalm says here, it's better for us to deal with death directly because we all know the way of flesh. And we need to lay it to heart. Question. Have you laid 
your own death to heart. That is, have you thought about preparing for your own death? Do you live in light of the fact that you will die and it is sooner now than it was a moment ago? I don't know if you know helps us think wisely about death. I don't know if you know it's also good because it, it helps us, really helps us. Jesus promised his people, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It's when we gather as believers at times of death that we can receive and know the comfort of our Savior. Going to a funeral is good because we gain wisdom. We can pray with Moses as we've been praying this morning. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Going to one funeral is better than going to a hundred parties. So Solomon says it's better to go to a funeral than it is to go to a party. Now you might be sitting here and say, Andy, is your aim this morning to depress us? We'll look at verse 3. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. Don't miss this, that the reward of sorrow is something better than laughter, genuine gladness. So we've seen uh, character gives is better than cologne. Our death day is better than our birthday. Funerals are better than feasts. Now we see sad faces give way to glad hearts. Death is good for the heart. Literally, it's the idea that's being communicated here. Now, our heart is the center of who we are as people. And verse 3 says, sorrow is better than laughter because it makes the heart glad. Literally, the idea is, by sadness, the heart is made better. Dealing with death and all its sorrow, get this, makes us better people. The house of mourning is the best place to take these truths to heart. So why choose sorrow over joy? How is it that sad faces bring about glad hearts? You know, it's only when you really mourn, you discover reality. You know, there's this tidal wave of, out, of, of, of emotion and affection for the queen. Many people are coming to realize that they loved her more than they realized. And that often happens at people's funerals. All of a sudden, without your permission, your lip begins to tremble. Tears start flowing. Pain awakens. Sorrow teaches us reality. The reality about our love. It can also teach us reality about what we find our joy in. If you're looking for your joy in a person, spouse, boyfriend, girlfriend, boss, colleague, your friends, do know that there will come a day when they will be laid to rest in the grave. 
They can never satisfy. They can never give you all that you want and all that you need. You might look for true joy in a career, security in a, a reputation, or in your wealth. You know what the Queen's coffin reminds us? For all the money and palaces she had, at the end of the day, it's a coffin about seven foot long. And none of that goes with her. Mourning helps us face up to reality, but mourning helps us. Sorrow helps us to discover true joy. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. For the Christian, true love, true joy, it's found when we discover, when we realize, when we know who Christ is, what Christ has done for us. You know, if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, our faith is futile. We are of all people in the world to be most pitied. We may as well eat, drink, and be merry. We might as well go to the house of feasting all day long, every day. But the fact that Christ has been raised, the fact that Christ is the firstfruits, who will bring many sons to glory. Do you know what that means? The house of mourning is for just a time. In fact, I think there's something so beautiful here when you meditate upon it. By by saying it's better to go to a funeral than a feast, by saying that sadness gives way to gladness, we are being reminded that right now we can save our appetites for the final feast, for the glorious banquet that Christ has prepared for us, for the endless feast that will be in the house of Zion. Going to a funeral is better than going to a feast. Sad face will give way to a glad heart because in death we remember and we discover what Christ has done for us. The good news is the house is that in the house of mourning we can remember the house of Hesed. The good news is that we will be in the house of Hesed with our Saviour, feasting with him forever. You know, as I wrap this up, I want to say this. Death is the greatest evangelist. He looks in all of our eyes. He asks us to look back at him. He wants us to allow him to teach us. His invitation is, I'll teach you wisdom. I'm coming for you. You will die. But Christ's death looks us, look at, looks at us in the eye. Christ's death says this. It was for you, for your sin. Christ's death defeated death. Christ's resurrection overcame the grave. Christ's death means that our death will be transformed. It will be our best day. The most glorious day. The most joyous day. Because there we will feast with him 
forever. So, brothers and sisters, as we sit in the house of mourning, let's learn wisdom. Let's learn how to live by preparing how to die. Let's pray. God, your wisdom is unsearchable. And we thank you that you teach us wisdom in the strangest of places. We thank you that even death teaches us about love and joy. We thank you that wisdom is found as we sit and stare at a coffin. And so we pray that in these days that you might unite our hearts to fear you, that we might gain a heart of wisdom. We thank you that the beginning of wisdom is in the fear of God. And so we pray that even as we think on these matters, that we would hold you in highest reverence. We pray, Lord, for the funeral service tomorrow, where it is expected that four billion people will tune in to watch it. We pray that the Queen's coffin and the Archbishop's sermon would preach the good news that death has been defeated, that forgiveness and life is extended to all who will put their faith and trust in him. We pray that this message would ring out and that many would come to know you and love you. Help us. Help us learn to mourn with those who mourn and help us to rejoice with those who rejoice. We pray this in Christ's precious name. Amen.